We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Blue Wire. Welcome back. This is the Big Blue Banter, New York Giants football podcast. I'm Dan Schneier. Joined as always my co-host Nick Filato, and tonight we will continue our positional breakdown series. We'll be focusing tonight on the offensive tackle group for the New York football Giants. We'll be moving on to the offensive interior line on the next show. We're going to come back to the wide receivers. We have special guests in place, at least in play right now, for that show. As far as quarterbacks go, we're also coming back to that one. We'll be bringing on Mark Schofield, who's been on the show twice. Our most downloaded podcast, probably our best podcast, in my opinion, our best guest. Though we've had a lot of really good guests, so it's really hard to decide who the best would be. They're all really good. But we're going to have some special guests for those, so we'll come back to those. But tonight we're breaking down the tackles. It's an important group for New York Football Giants. Before we get there, Nick... How was your weekend this weekend? Oh, it was lovely, you know. Just nice. uh, entering the summer, bro, and I'm really excited about a perfect running weather, perfect biking, cycling weather, you know. We call it perfect running weather. Today I was outside and I was trying to get some exercise in and it was like sticky bad hot. I would never call that perfect no, running man, weather. No, man, you just got to slap a beanie on your head and it's go for per- a nice run. Perfect running weather is like <laughs> 75 degrees and not New Jersey. Like there's way too much humidity for New Jersey to ever be considered See, perfect I don't think, running weather. I don't think New Jersey has that much humidity, man. I look at like Florida and I used to be in North Carolina, that was really, really humid for me up here. This I mean, still it's still top five. It, it's, I, don't, I mean, I don't know if it's top five or not, but I feel like it's much more mild up here than it was when I was living in the South. When I was yeah, like, wow, I guess this the is South like, is bad. Yeah, it was, it, that was horrendous. So I, and I enjoy running in, in the heat. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I do, man. I, I you know, me, you better stop that sentence that I enjoy running and I still get <laughs> in that reaction. I put my brown beanie on, you know. And I just go. I understand how anyone enjoys running, Nick. I really don't get it, but apparently you do. You're one of those people, which is nice. It's good for you. I, I'd like to enjoy it, but instead I'll just continue to walk. I do walks. Those I like are, walks. Yeah, walks are solid. But otherwise, it was a good weekend for me. I got to see the Mets at City Field. First game back at City for me. It was the Grom Day. It was Saturday. Great game. The Mets won. Going down, they were down in the ninth. Bottom of the ninth, they won uh, when Philly blew another save. The Phillies have blown a ton of saves that series. And it was great to see a win there, and it was great to see DeGrom there. Fun to be at the stadium, the sun beaming down, having drinks. I The only thing I screwed up on was you go into City, and so we had seats. It was DeGrom day, so seats were expensive. So we bought the worst seats in the house and just moved down. So we moved to a spot that I like. It is, you call them the nosebleeds, but I like this spot. It's right on the first baseline. 
and it's about the lo- the first or second row of the 400 level. So you're right, kind of a nice view looking down. It'd be even better for football, but it's fine for baseball. The problem with it is there's not that much great food there. So the best food is on that first level. So I didn't get a real chance to get any of the great. I wanted that hot pastrami place they got at City Field, which is one of my favorite things the, you can get. The promenade level has promenade that. Le- no, the promenade level is oh, where you top. were. No, I didn't yeah. see that. No, I don't have that pastrami. Yeah, they do. I mean, you would know, but I don't think that I, I don't think I saw it. Anyway, what I settled on was a Fugazi food thing because it claimed to be. I like how you said Fugazi. It was Fugazi. Claimed Fugazi, to be yeah. Patty Lafrade Fugazi. <laughs> Came to be Patty Lafredo hamburger, like a Patty Lafrade cheeseburger. So I'm like, oh, what's on this? First of all, it's fifteen dollar burger, whatever. I don't care. It's not that big of a deal. But they, I opened this patty. There was nothing on it but a slice of American cheese, and it was the saddest, most skinniest looking patty ever apparently it's technically patty the free to beef i'm sure they couldn't fuck that up or couldn't mess that up excuse my language but i've had patty the free to there you get the steak sandwich there that's one of the better things they have the patty the free to steak sandwich and this just wasn't living up to the par so i screwed up on the food option besides that it was a great day great game but screwing up on the food option was tough it's a devastating mistake to make but you know what you live and you learn you get to see the great mr met I did get to see the great Mr. Met and Mrs. Met. And Mrs. Met. That's and awesome. Mrs. Met. And another win in the food cal- column category for me this weekend was, I don't know if you saw, but there was a report that Subway got busted because <laughs> Subway was apparently selling tuna fish that didn't actually have any DNA of tuna in the tuna fish. Just another notch in the belt for me. I've actually never let it rip on this podcast, but I think Subway is one of the most disgusting establishments in, I, I really apologize if any of you work there or listen in. Or, and if you work there, you might still hate the company, so I don't fully apologize. I give a half-hearted apology. But if you own any stock or if you own a Subway somewhere, I, good luck. I apologize. There's still some suckers eating there, but that is just a disgusting – when I watched them peel the – the last time I went there, I ordered <laughs> a, a cold cut and some kind of like BMT they call it. It's like their BS version of an Italian – and you watch the, the cold cut meats, they they peel off that plastic and it's just so slimy and wet. And you know that wasn't cut. Like, you know that deli meat was not sliced on scene. It was sliced in some factory and just like glued together with almost an adhesive. It's just the most disgusting food establishment out there. And I say that with places that are literally serving poison like Burger King McDonald's out there. It's just genuine poison selling to the customers. And our newest sponsor. Yeah. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully they don't run into any sponsors of these. I'll have to cut this later. But, geez, geez I Louise. think it's hilarious because I wanted to bring this up on the podcast, but I never knew. I never knew if you ever have before, and I don't believe the listeners are aware of your disdain for Subway. I freaking hate Subway, man. <laughs> have you ever noticed when you go to Subway and you order the the meatballs and they're all perfectly in the exact same form? The meatballs. Anyone who's cooked meatballs before knows that you cannot have a perfect – every single meatball is not going to be the exact same thing. Those are factory-pressed meatballs. Oh, my God. The place is just a disgusting establishment. Hopefully, they're never a sponsor here and we'll have to edit all this out later or something. But I was happy to see them go down with that. I was very, very, very happy to see that report come out where there's not any traces of tuna DNA in their tuna because it's just Subway in a nutshell to me. Yes. I don't even know what, what the heck could be in it. Hopefully, it's some sort of seafood. Some kind of chemical. Definitely not some sort of seafood. You it's worse if it's a seafood. You don't want them. You don't want to be eating seafood from most places these days, especially not Subway. But let's get into the Giants' offensive tackles, and we're going to start with the positional overview. And I'm going to start here, Nick. On a scale of one to ten, how would you rate this position group, just the offensive tackles, heading into the 2021 season versus the rest of the NFL? 
See, this is interesting because it could go one of two ways. I mean, it's hard for me to really pick because if they progress like we hope under Rob Sale with Jason Garrett, under Joe Judge's tutelage, then it could be on the higher echelon. I would never probably put it from 8 to 10, but it could be realistically in the 6 to 7 range. But... If that doesn't happen, and they have sophomore slumps, both of these guys, this could be a horrendous tackle pairing. It really could be. And I don't want to say that. I don't say that with any kind of contemptuous attitude, but realistically, that could happen as well. So I'm going to say, relative to the rest of the NFL, I'm going to go with four right now. I don't think that's unfair right there to go with four for the Giants on a scale of one to ten. How confident are you in, or how would you rank them versus the rest of the NFL? It is, like you said, it's a really high floor and, I'm sorry, high ceiling, low floor type of situation the Giants have going because Andrew Thomas played great football in the second half of the season, but at the same time, Andrew Thomas had a really bad first half of the season. A horrendous. And when I say great football the second half, it wasn't Tristan Wirth's level, it wasn't top five level, it wasn't top ten level. It was great because it was compared to the front end of the season because there was still that Baltimore game where Andrew Thomas was not good. There was still that Arizona game where Andrew Thomas was not good. And you still have, you know, two sore thumb games in that second half. Some would also say uh, that, I guess that's probably it for the second half, the games he struggled. Yeah, and I want to point this out too, just because I see along Twitter people like poking fun at Miles Garrett because Andrew Thomas had a good game against him and then he surrendered that sack late against Miles Garrett. But Miles Garrett, that was his first game back off of COVID. He had a really serious case of COVID as well. So... I'm not going to sit here and act like Andrew Thomas, a player that I am hopeful for, a player that I respect, a player that did have his struggles in year one, but, you know, showed solid development down the stretch of the season. I ain't going to sit here and act like he dominated one of the top pass rushers in the NFL in Miles Garrett, because I don't, a fully healthy Miles Garrett against a rookie Andrew Thomas, that's not necessarily something I want to see. Nor do I think Andrew Thomas dominated Chase Young, which is another narrative that you see around Giants Twitter. I mean, the Giants, if you watch those games against the Washington football team, the Giants were doing everything in their power to call their offense to not have Chase Young and Montez Sweat dominate their offense their offensive strategy that's what the game plan was don't let those guys beat you and Andrew Thomas did fine with what he was asked to do but I'm not gonna sit here and act like he's just out here just dominating Chase Young yeah I mean you're spot on with that the narrative might suggest that he dominated those two guys but the all 22 film shows and if you have any idea of the concepts of football you understand that that was just all scheme based I mean both games specifically the second one with Jason Garrett that you or the first one you referenced the one against Miles Garrett that that was a Colt McCoy game. I mean, they were just designed to get the ball out of boom, boom, boom. They did not want any big dropbacks from McCoy. That was they put him mer- very rarely. They put Andrew Thomas on an island in that game against, like you said, coming off COVID, Miles Garrett. So it wasn't exactly you know a ton of deep drops, deep deep pass sets that he has to protect against. And so I don't. The second one is is also in that regard. I mean, most of the season Garrett did that. That was his game plan for most of the season. But specifically the games where Jones was out, that was the game plan. And it had to be, too. And that's also good adjustments by Jason Garrett that we should, you know, bring up as well. And then Jason Garrett wasn't there for that Browns game because he also had COVID and it was Freddie Kitchens that stepped in there. And Freddie Kitchens, he made a couple nice adjustments, I feel like, just to Jason Garrett's playbook. And I know we applauded him for that. But another thing that he did was just not put Andrew Thomas in a situation where he's going to be susceptible to the superior football just skill set of Miles Garrett. But again, Miles Garrett was also hampered during that game because he just got off COVID. Yeah, without a doubt. So I think it's fair to put them in that group. 
Uh, if you look at just, this is just one, you know, and I don't like to always use pro football focus as a point of reference, but at the same time, when it comes to offensive line play, there really isn't that many, uh, there aren't too many other, you know, unique sources grading individual offensive line play. So take it with a grain of salt, take it how you want. It doesn't matter to me, but it's worth something. And according to them, the Giants had two average, basically, tackles last year. They had, you know, filtering out only the tackles who played at least 50% of the snaps. That's 52 tackles in the NFL last year. The Giants ranked 34th with Andrew Thomas, 35th with Cameron Fleming, and Matt Parrott didn't qualify. So going into this year, you know, that's, I think, four. You put it on a 1 to 10 scale, four is a fair range. There's obviously a chance for a ceiling, but, you know, Matt Parrott could, could, could hurt this team as well. I mean, it's not a guarantee that Parrott just immediately becomes that locked-in starting right tackle you can count on. No, absolutely not. And also, man, just going through some of the film, Cameron Fleming, there were there were drives that he just killed last year. Yeah. He was a drive killer sometimes where the offensive line was playing relatively well, and you got to was a young offensive line that they had last season and Cameron Fleming would just beat around the edge beat inside bull rushed into Daniel Jones and hopefully Matt Parrott cannot allow that to happen we've seen pictures of Parrott it looks like he's added you know maybe like 15 pounds of muscle he looks a lot thicker right now and we'll get into Parrott till we're uh, done with Andrew Thomas but I think I think four is still me me judging it with some ascension from what these two showed last year. And I'm not saying that they were terrible last season, but it wasn't it wasn't all roses, man. It it wasn't, especially down the stretch with Matt Parrott when he was dealing with COVID and uh, during that Ravens game. Where after that, I, I don't think he hardly saw the field after that Ravens game. That was week se- uh, 16, but week 17 they were like, all right, we're gonna put Cam Fleming in there. I'm not sure if Parrott even had any snaps there. Yeah, I don't think he did that game. And it's it's interesting. Before we move on to some individual breakdowns of this group, I do want to qu- uh, I guess quiz the quiz the room here and, and get you involved on this, Nick. Had you have you guys ever noticed that when Nick says pitcher, he pronounces it pitcher like a baseball pitcher? Yeah, I do. Yeah, he just did that a few minutes ago, and I'm trying to be cu- I'm trying to find out because my friend Steve Milano does as well. Is this an Italian Jersey thing? It might be, or is this like specific to? Like a region, I, what is this? Who are the people who pronounce "picture picture"? Let me, let me take the C let me see out this. of picture. Picture. It's basically what you say. I'm saying the C. That was me saying the C there, though. There was no C sound. You so just picture is what picture. people say. Yes, no, like no, a pic. That's trash. You have to say no. That's yeah, not trash. That's, that's trash. how it's pronounced. Picture. 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 I feel like that C is an extra just uh, extra consonant. I don't need. Fuck you do C. need it or because it. otherwise Sorry. you're talking about a baseball picture. Eh, context. You know, like, uh, what is it, uh, like Squanchville from Rick and Morty? Yeah. Ah, they're more contextual, like Marklar from yeah. South Park. Squanch. <laughs> okay. No, I, I get it. I just want to find out if this is an Italian thing, if this is a New Jersey thing. Reach out to us. If you pronounce picture with the, without the C, just let me know and give me a little idea on your background. If I see those vowels at the end of their last names and they don't pronounce know. a C, then we'll know. Then we'll know. All right, <laughs> let's break down the individual players here. First, we'll take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. 
Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Alrighty, let's start our individual breakdowns with the number one guy. I'm going to call him the number one guy. I think he is the best prospect on the Giants right now at any position when you factor in positional importance, how important having a left tackle is, age, and just overall upside. And that would be Andrew Thomas. Now, having said that, his rookie season overall was disappointing. There's no ifs, ands, and buts about it. Giants fans who are optimistic might tell you differently. And he did have a solid second half, but he was one of the worst tackles in the NFL in the first half. Genuinely speaking, like there's no way beating around the bush. He, I think he allowed 20 more pressures than any tackle through the first seven weeks or something insane like that. Or maybe that was combined. Him and Cam allowed 20 more than any two tackles, but he was up there for having allowed the most ta- uh, pressures among all tackles. So overall, what's kind of your take on Thomas going into year two? What's the ceiling? What's the floor? Where do you see him for the Giants this year? I think he's. Go- I think he has a high ceiling. I do because there was all that positive development that we talked about. He looked just so much more confident with his sets, with his hands, with how he reacted to what the defender was doing. And vertical displacement and just moving guys off the line of scrimmage, down blocks, all of those things were never really an issue for Andrew Thomas. Framing his blocks were an issue, and also him kicking out on those 45-degree sets and those vertical sets and then protecting his inside, that was a huge issue. When to strike, when not to lunge, all of those things, these little technical things, were all issues in that first half. And then you saw it clear up. Uh, in the second half of the season you saw him just be more confident after that Philadelphia Eagles game where that Eagles game that was a bad game that was he was beat inside several times he was beat around the edge couldn't really handle counter moves they were run uh run blocking reps where he was just over lunging and just allowing guys to beat him inside to just make tackles for losses just bad stuff was happening but then remember that was a Thursday game and then didn't play until Monday and when they faced the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and he was pretty good against Tampa Bay he was. And then you just continue to see that. And yeah, he had his little rookie lumps still, but he he brought it all together. And I believe he's going to build upon that. And I think he's going to be a more consistent, more confident player and a more reliable player in terms of all the little technical things. His feet, his feet are on the ground when he strikes. He's using, he's exploding through the ground as well, using that to help him. His feet are not a liability. They weren't at least down the stretch. I don't believe they will be as much this year in his hands. And then his eyes, all those things have to work in conjunction with each other. We saw a little bit of glimpses of that, developed some consistency outside of the Arizona and Baltimore game down the stretch of the season. And I expect him to kind of build upon that. And I think Rob Sale's only going to help. I think this off season should only help as well. So I'm... I'm expecting a good season from Andrew Thomas, but again, I'm still a little bit cautious just because we did see a lot of uh, 
just inconsistencies in his first year out there. I mean, he had 57 pressures and he allowed 10 sacks. And just to bring it up, because we touched on it a little bit, against Washington, in the two games against Washington in week six, he only had four true pass sets, according to Pro Football Focus. And then in week nine, he only had nine. Like, they weren't taking true pass sets against Chase Young. That's not going to be a thing now with all of these weapons. Now you're getting Saquon Barkley back. You're probably not going to have an offense that's as conservative. So he's going to need to clean all these things up that he showed that he could do down the stretch of the season. So I feel I feel, um, feel good about it. But it's still, he could be some sort of sophomore slump. I think Rob Sale is going to really help prevent that, though. Yeah, and three true pass sets. And these are all according to pro football folks, by the way. Against Seattle, obviously the offense wasn't on the field much that game. 12 true pass sets against Dallas. This is not many. I mean, the Giants weren't running an offense that was asking him to do too much. So that's one, I guess you could say, I don't know, potential red flag, but not really because I think for me heading into year two with Thomas, it's more about what can the ceiling be rather than the floor. I feel actually pretty confident about what the floor can be. I feel like most of what plagued him that first half of the season wasn't exactly there the second half and that was because he like you said he was more confident and he cleaned up the thing he was worst at which was kind of how to react on those true pass on those vertical sets where he really had to get out on that island and either get you know react to an inside move that he wasn't expecting at first or you know which he also did a better job of the second thing which was kind of push that pass rusher up the arc and he already does some things really well at the nfl level like even better than or as good as some of these guys like jedrick wills and tristan Wirfs and makai becton as far as down blocking goes which is going to help the giants a lot because they're going to be a conservative run first offense for the most part we expect if the defense is good they're going to want to run saquon barkley they're going to want to establish the run and walk the work the play action off the run and those are all things i think he can do a great job of for them right away in year two and i think Overall, when it comes to Thomas, I see a pretty high floor heading into this year. I would say I'm more confident in that than the ceiling. I'm not so sure what the ceiling is with a player like Thomas because he's not naturally that athletic or, in my mind, just does not that explosive or athletic, I guess I would say. Or, at the same time, not as agile as some of these like freaks like Mekhi Becton and Tristan Wirfs. Those are guys whose ceiling, to me, just shoots off the page based on their athleticism and kind of the flashes they've shown. But there have been times where he has shown really good flashes. Like Again, didn't have too many reps against Miles Garrett, and he was coming off COVID, but had some good reps there. Had some really good reps against Dallas. Obviously, not the best pass rushers in that Week 17 game, but had some really flashy moments, I think, as a rookie, too. So... I'm pretty confident going into year two when it comes to Thomas, to be honest, as far as ceiling and floor all combined go. Yeah, it seemed like once he cleaned up that that inside yeah, exactly. just liability. I mean, and it was a thing, man, where he was just getting way too far up the arc and just providing an open angle. And the way the defenses, they were aware. So they would line a two technique or a three technique to occupy whatever guard was playing next to him, Shane Lemieux or Will Hernandez, and then he had to be on an island for a lot of these. And then they were sending exotic blitzes his way. And him and Saquon Barkley early in the season were, weren't on the same page quite a bit against Pittsburgh when it led to Daniel Jones just getting annihilated a few different times because they would bring a five-man pressure package to that side to manipulate the protection because there were communication issues between Barkley and Thomas. But I would agree that the floor, Dan, I, I think it is higher then um, the ceiling might be higher, I guess, if that makes any sense. But I do believe Andrew Thomas is a good athlete, though, too. He's just not maybe as nimble as a Dedrick Wills. And Mekhi Becton, just with his sheer size, is just absolutely incredible. But um, I'm I'm optimistic for, for the development of Andrew Thomas. And again, like I kind of said before, Rob Sale, I do believe, is a big part of that. We just need to 
ensure that he doesn't kind of get into those bad habits that we saw in year one. And he needs to be sure that, hey, use your feet. It's all about the feet first. Then it's the strike. Then you move your, then you also use your eyes too to see. And you had to be cleaner on those stunts and those transitions. Him and Will Hernandez were a little bit off with that earlier in the season. And then him and Shane Lemieux, they, they seem to have a little bit of a better rapport with that outside of that Arizona game. So hopefully uh, this young unit can just grow together. Yeah, Arizona and Baltimore, I think there was oh, just bad, too, yeah. bad, bad offensive line play in both games. But I think that'll also help Thomas year two, playing next to Shane Lemieux for the whole season, having somebody he's more familiar with and he's able to build a stronger rapport with. Just not, you know, mixing and matching so many guys there. Having so, even when I'm sure it was tough for him, even when they were rotating in Lemieux and Hernandez during the game. So I think ultimately that will help him as well this season. Again, how about Matt Parrott? Where are we at with Matt Parrott heading into year two? So yeah, it's it's hard to say. Last time we saw Matt Parrott was that Week 16 game against Baltimore, and that sequence where he, where three sacks were allowed through his side. Now I don't think they were all his fault. But they were excellent pressure packages from Wink Martindale. And I think one of them was really his fault. Another one might have been slightly his fault. And the other one, I believe, was on the running back. But uh, regardless, I think Matt Parrott has a very high ceiling. He put on that strength. I think he needed to put on that strength. When I watch him, I don't see somebody who has this dominating punch. I see him use his length well, but I do see him extend a little bit too much sometimes. And just think about it. And whenever you extend your arms forward and your elbows just straighten out what happens your whole momentum goes forward as well and that leaves you susceptible to moves inside power moves it just leaves you susceptible to any type of counter move so i think he needs to clean that up a little bit but he kind of um came along as a run blocker really well those washington games he really showed up he was clearing paths down blocks he was doing well with his hips positioning himself and i think positioning is a thing that he never really struggled with in the run game but if you watch his pass set sometimes he has an excellent feat in terms of speed i think the pass sets weren't as clean as we would like but i think there's definitely it's not an athletic capability or anything like that i just think with technique all that stuff is going to come there were times where i felt like he allowed the say like a wide nine technique someone who was outside of his outside shoulder to get into that outside shoulder where he was a little bit too patient to wait because you don't want to be over you want to overexert and then punch too early that leaves yourself wide open to those counter moves that i was just talking about but if you aren't if you're way too patient and you allow them into your body then that's going to allow them to just get inside of your body restrict the space and then they can get your jersey pull you and throw you whatever direction you want you want to really time that punch up well i felt like that's something that he struggled with down the stretch of the season as well but again him he had covid too and these guys are they're over 300 pounds covid's going to affect these guys uh, more than they're going to affect maybe like a 150 pound man so i think all those things need to kind of be weighed in but technically speaking there were issues with matt pair i think all that can be cleaned up i think he has a really high ceiling but the floor is still i think yet to be determined uh again I, like i said all throughout the spring I'm cautiously optimistic about the offensive line. If it all implodes, I think we can all say, look, we saw that coming. But at the same time, I think they can all take a step forward with Joe Judge, with Rob Sale. And I think Matt Parrott has all the capabilities. He has the athletic ability. Athletic ability. It seems like he put on the strength to, do, uh, to improve his game, take it to the next level. And I think he can just clean up those little technical errors. I don't think that's going to be something that... Uh, should plague him in this second season, but it, it certainly could. Yeah, you hit all the meat, the key, uh, key main points, I think, there when it comes to Parrot. 
But I will say this. my The things I'll be watching for with Parrott, he is a total high uh, ceiling floor type of player for me because I think the ceiling could be really, really good this year. And I think the floor could be really, really low this year. But I want to say I think part of why he struggled toward the end of the season was the COVID issue. And I don't know that for a fact, but from what I've been reading, there is the long haul syndrome that a lot of doctors believe in that I've read a lot of decent stuff about. My uncle put me, put, put me on a really good article that talked about it. And it impacts these players or these people, I should say, that are in that weight range. And he's a 300 pound human being. And so it's going to impact him more than it's going to impact you or me or you know somebody else who's under 200 pounds who might get the, the, get the disease. So that's one thing. I also think with Pear, you said it best, a lot of his issues are fundamental and technical. Like you said, even as a run blocker, that's where he really flashed at the beginning of the season. More so than the pass blocker, it was as a run blocker. And we went into the season thinking he would be a great pass blocker or you know he profiles as an excellent pass blocker, maybe not so much as a run blocker. But his flashes came as a run blocker. And like you said, they were mostly in situations where he didn't have to overexert and have to kind of you know, put himself off balance by, like you said, fully extending his arms out. That's still something he needs to improve on and work on. And that's still something he's not doing a great job of. And that's something that can be improved. I believe that. But the pass blocking to me was a lot of up, you know, it was a lot of potential. We based it on last year. He was the 99th overall pick. This was a project pick. But he's super smooth. He's super athletic. But there's a lot that goes into pass blocking that's, like you said, technical. I mean, you'd probably be the first one to tell to anybody this. It's There's a lot of technical, there's a big technical side to pass blocking. And I'm not so sure that's going to take such a huge step from year one to year two from a guy who played at such a lower level at the college level and then didn't get many reps at all at the NFL level last year. That's my biggest concern, I would say, pass blocking going into this year. Not because he doesn't have the feet for it. Not because he doesn't have the length for it, just because it's going to take t- some time for him to get it down, technically speaking. So that's kind of where I'm at with Parrot, in addition to all the things you mentioned, because those are some of those things I was going to talk about, but I think you did a better, uh, a good job hit- hitting them. Yeah, thank you. And um, yeah, I think uh, just watching some of his clips, there, there are reps of him going up against Montez Sweat in that Washington game where he saw like a, a big bulk of snaps. Remember that? And we were like, oh, the wow. The first game, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's playing a lot. Of, and there were a lot of good reps from him there where Montez Sweat, somebody who can <laughs> rival Matt Parrott in terms of length because Sweat is just built like an Adonis, man. It's, it's incredible. And he would... He would go punch for punch with him, and you could see that Sweat would make initial contact on his chest. And you're like, uh-oh, is Sweat about to you know, convert speed to power and bully this young rookie into the backfield? But then Parrot would readjust, go underneath his arms, and kind of reestablish his position while simultaneously sinking his hips and unlocking that posterior strength to just kind of set his feet into the ground while mirroring him and moving him up the arc. Those are the types of things that make Matt Parrott's ceiling really, really large. He can adapt to these counter moves if he loses initial, if he loses the initial contact. I mean, he has a lot of length, right? He shouldn't always be losing initial contact. Length is not his issue. But if he does, he can readjust, get inside, and resync those hips to stop these talented rushers from converting speed to power and bullying him over. And one thing that's going to help him from doing that is the fact that he seems like he put on 15 to 20 uh, pounds of muscle. Now I'm kind of just pulling those numbers out of my ass, to be honest. But you saw pictures of him, right? Coming into uh, minicamp and OTA. He he looks like he's, he's beefier, and it doesn't look like bad weight either. And that's something that uh, he could use a little bit of because he's six foot seven, according to Pro Football Focus, 301 pounds. If he puts on a little bit more weight and it doesn't affect his athletic ability, that can only help him. Yeah, I think you're right. I, Parrot is one of their highest upside prospects as well on this roster. 
I call Andrew Thomas the best prospect because I think the floor is really high with him, but Parrott, if he does realize his potential, the Giants could be a much better offense than anyone is expecting this year. Let's dive into some big questions facing position because I think within these questions, we're going to hit some of the other players here, Nate Solder specifically. As far as Jackson Barton and Kenny Wiggins go, their depth pieces, neither Nick and I have dove too far into them. We'll see what goes on with them in training camp. I think it's going to be an uphill battle for either of them to make the roster. But one of those questions, one of the questions we're about to ask, one of the main questions facing this position, might dive into that, but we'll wait. And the first one will be, and we kind of touched on it, but do you feel like over the course of the season, I'll say, can Matt Parrott hold up on an island as a pass protector? I think he could. He definitely has the footwork to mirror. He has the length to initiate contact, but that doesn't mean he's not going to get beat sometimes. I mean, you're going up against incredibly skilled people on the other side of the football. But overall, generally speaking, yes, I do believe that he can. And if he doesn't end up actually doing that and actualizing himself in that manner, then (laughs) you might have to see Nate Solder in there. And that's I know that's a question that we're going to be talking about in a little bit, but if Matt Parrott really, really struggles and, and has those early season Andrew, like this is the question I want to form. If Matt Parrott struggles like Andrew Thomas did, how long will the Giants allow that to happen before they turn to Nate Solder? I think so much depends on what Nate Solder shows during training camp because there is a non-zero chance that Nate Solder gets a training camp, he gets to the preseason, and the Giants are one or two weeks in preseason, and they're like, this guy's done. He has nothing left because he was already showing signs of it toward the end of his final season with the Giants 2019. Took a year off, is another year older. That could help his body, but he was a really long, tall guy at six foot eight, and he was already showing signs of not being able to bend. If you can't bend as an offensive tackle, you're done. You're not going to make it through. And so a lot of that to me depends on that because behind Solder, there's nothing at tackle that I have any confidence in on this roster starting in a week. I mean, you want to throw, now he's converted to guard Chad Slade, like Jackson Barton, Kenny Wiggins, like none of these guys you can feel confident in in an NFL game. So it all depends to me on what Solder gives them. But I think we have to view this, like we, if we're going to give Daniel Jones a million years to develop or three years, full years to develop, and some people probably argue if he's bad this year, he gets another, you got to give someone like Parrott at least a few more snaps to develop that doesn't mean you don't draft over him you could draft over him but if he struggles at the first I don't know that that means you turn the page right away because he's there's still to me there's still so much for him to learn and develop like he is still such a raw prospect I know he's being thrust into the starting role and the Giants are hoping for the best but this guy played at UConn it's not level he didn't face a single NFL pass rusher and then he didn't get that many snaps what did he get last year 84 true pass blocking sets the entire season not even a hundred snaps in pa- as a pass blocker, and obviously he had some run blocking snaps. But I might have been over. How many snaps did he get overall? Yeah, thirty six true pass sets right. and eighty four pass blocking yeah. snaps that he was out there. And so he still needs reps. Like he was a raw prospect coming in. He needs reps. So I would say you need to stick with him for a while. But if Solder looks like the twenty eight, the early twenty eighteen version, the first half twenty eighteen version of himself, somehow take a year off, his body's better, whatever. That's a different story. Then then it's tough because then it kind of depends if the Giants are competitive or not. Exactly, and we would hope that they are. And I'm talking about, you know, six, seven weeks in kind of thing, not like, you know, the first week or the second week. And Pear ended up having 150 total snaps. You're right, he does need more reps. He needs more snaps. But I do believe he can hold up on an island if the development goes as all of us Giants fans hope it does. Yes, I think certainly. Yeah. All right, what's the ceiling as far as ranking him against other NFL tackles for Andrew Thomas? 
just for 2021. What's the best case scenario you see happening? Best best case scenario for Andrew Thomas, I would say, is top 10. That is the absolute best case scenario. I would say the more realistic scenario would probably be top 25, maybe. Top 25, top 20. And that's that would be, I would sign up for that any day for a second year tackle who struggled mightily in his rookie season. So that's what I would, I, that's what I'm hoping for somewhere in that range. And then going into his third year, he can build and grow upon that. I would say the ceiling's top 10 as well, but I wouldn't say it'd be a good thing if he's a top 25 tackle. If he was drafted at fourth overall in a loaded tackle class, he needs to at least be a top 15 tackle by year two in my mind. Otherwise, it's another bad pick. Because there's 32 tackles playing. Last year, he I know we we went we judged it off 54, 54 qualified for that 50% snap top, uh, percentile. But as far as just the top 32 go, or I'm sorry, there's 64, not 32. That was a mistake. But there's 64 tackles in the NFL. There's 32 left tackles, is what I meant. And I think he needs to be in the top 10 among left tackles if you're drafted that high. That's what we're definitely all hoping for. But. Uh... I don't know, man. Uh, I would I would sign up for 25 right now, to be honest with you. And, I mean, there's always the opportunity cost that we're always going to talk about that. He was drafted above Mekhi Becton, Jedrick Wills, and Tristan Wirfs. But I'm going to try not to look at it that way and just look at him from the prism of, hey, just block for Daniel Jones. Don't give up the inside counter. Protect the outside shoulder. And don't allow your quarterback to get killed. And he showed glimpses of that. But overall, if we're going to look at his entire rookie season, he... he did a lot of those things to to allow Daniel Jones to essentially get killed in a lot of situations. Yeah. All right, let's do another question facing position. What would we expect out of Nate Solder if Thomas or Parrott were to get injured? I think you touched on this before. I mean, it really all depends on training camp. We're going to learn a lot. Can he still bend? Can he still get to his set points on time? How is his feet moving, essentially? Are they quick? Are they slow? And really the bend and the athletic ability, all that's – there's just no way for us to really know how successful or where he's at with that so we have to figure that out first and say that he is the 2019 Nate Solder and he's not dealing with injuries then we're looking at somebody who you probably don't want to see on the football field somebody you don't want to uh, be filling in for Andrew Thomas or Matt Perry if either of those guys end up going down but there's not really anybody else on this roster right now and I mean I don't know much about Jackson Barton. He's another gigantic human being. I believe he's like six foot eight. I remember the Giants claimed him, I think, off the Kansas City Chiefs practice squad. Seems like the Giants like him, but I don't really know much about his film, so I don't want to weigh in on that. So we need we need Parrot and Andrew Thomas if this Giants team is going to be a playoff team. We need them to take some sort of steps forward for that to happen, to be honest. Yeah, you're right. All right, let's get in some bold prediction for the position. Give me your bold prediction for this offensive tackle group. Andrew Thomas will cut his pressures in half. So last year he had 57, and I believe he's going to have 28, so I'm not going to round up. So he's going to have 28 pressures allowed, and that will put him around what Orlando Brown was last year. Okay, that's a good, it's a great starting point for him. I mean, listen, if he can improve to that level, he's a solid tackle. He's probably top 10. I would say Orlando Brown Jr. was probably top 10 tackle. Now, of course, the caveat is Orlando Brown Jr. didn't have to pass block a lot because they ran the ball so much in Baltimore. But having said that, he's somebody who you could be totally, if the Giants can get Andrew um, Thomas to a Orlando Brown Jr. Level, level, that's good. That's something you can rely on for 10 years, really. I mean, the Chiefs just made a big bet on him. And the, the Ravens as well were very happy with him before trading him. I'm going to say, what's yours, bro? Mine would be 
that both Thomas and Parrott play the full 17 games and don't end up missing more than a handful or two of snaps. I think it's going to start right off the gate with Parrott as that number one right tackle. I don't think he's going to look back. I I have... I'm probably too optimistic about Parrott going into this year, but I think that after what I watched with Cameron Fleming last year, at worst, he's going to be that in pa- as our pass blocker, and he's going to add so much more as a run blocker. And the best case scenario is he picks up on the coaching really fast, uses that length, uses that athleticism, uses that foot speed and foot quickness, and becomes a really good tackle for them right away. And also, just from a mental standpoint, let's hope like, because I brought this up several times on the podcast, last year was a tumultuous situation with Mark Colombo and that entire offensive line situation. And we saw just defensive coordinators use stunts and twists and pressure packages to totally manipulate the protections. Now, it wasn't Hal Hunter type of stuff, but it was pretty bad, especially with the youth of this offensive line. But if Rob Sale can really, you know, instill his systems and protections with these younger guys, and we see a just step forward from all of these young guys in terms of handling those stunts and those twists with his own blocking scheme that could be huge as well man because though i mean a lot of teams right now are trying to just drop more guys into coverage you know dropping eight guys into coverage sometimes which will only lead to three guys rushing but you've seen a lot more seven guys dropping into coverage as well which leads four man pressure packages which means more stunts and then when there are eight guys dropping into coverage three with exotic stunts just with three and you know, if you're if you have these liabilities and these communication issues along the offensive line, as they say in South Park, bro, gonna have a bad time. Yeah, it's not gonna be good. All right, let's get into some questions from the listeners, and we'll wrap up there. We'll start with Jared, who asks, "What impact can Rob Sale, Pat Flaherty, and Ben Wilkerson have on this young offensive line?" I see. We've been talking a lot actually about Rob Sale in this episode and I think Pat Flaherty coming back I think that's also something that's going to help and then Ben Wilkerson who's the assistant offensive line coach I think they can have a huge impact and similar to the things I just went over is because last year was a really odd situation not just because it was COVID the truncated offseason first year head coach all that stuff but because the offensive line coach wanted to beat up the head football coach not something that you see every day in the National Football League so I think bringing in Rob Sale someone Joe Judge knows someone Joe Judge trusts someone who has groomed young offensive line talent in the NFL at a lower level because he was a raging Cajun. So I, I, I do believe that it can have a huge impact on these young guys like Nick Gates, Will Hernandez, Shane Lemieux, really all of them, to be honest, Matt Pear and obviously Andrew Thomas. Yeah, I think you don't have to look for too much further than like a team like the Browns, for example, last year. What a big impact Bill Callahan had on that yes. offensive line. That offensive line going into last season was not very good. It had talent. It had names before Jedrick Wills was drafted. They signed Jack Conklin, obviously added talent to the mix. But a player like Wyatt Teller did not break out yet until Bill Callahan got there. And that entire offensive line played as a unit and played cohesive and played the specific style of the system that obviously Kevin's fancy brought in. But a big, you know, a big reason for that was Bill Callahan. Now, obviously, Rob Sale, we're hoping, could be like the next Bill Callahan, right? Or the next Mike Munchak or one of these elite offensive line coaches. Possible. You never know. They could have uncovered him. It's not likely it's not definite but it's possible and so the impact is hard to predict based on the, the the coaches Flaherty sale although Flaherty does have a really good track record so that you can kind of base it on and Wilkerson but the impact of offensive line coaches does make a massive difference on offensive lines Absolutely. that we know yeah and we were hoping that Colombo was going to have that but like right. there might have been just butting of the heads a lot of the times through like you know the off season and everything like that and then into the season there were reports that Joe Judge tried to, you know, step in to help the offensive line, and Colombo didn't like that. And then when right. Judge approached him about, hey, D. Guglielmo is going to come in, he, like, flipped out, apparently. But <laughs> anyway, speaking of Colombo, have you ever seen that show, Colombo, that detective show? 
No, I haven't even heard of it. No, you haven't? No. It sounds and terrible. It was from like the 60s or oh, 70s. No, I'm just messing yeah. with you. I don't know yeah. if it sounds good or bad. Yeah, it's a very older show. Anyway, <laughs> we have a question from Ashley as well. Um, last question. She says, hey, Nick, was wondering if you and Dan could talk about body type and position. For example, what makes a defensive line versus an offensive lineman? See, I got curious after learning Brandon Jacobs was a defensive end who turned into running back. Do those positions have similar body types? Would be interesting to get an overview of all the positions. I would say that a lot of that stuff is really determined when you get to college. See, a lot of these guys who were in the NFL, when they were in high school, they were playing both sides of the ball. They were really, really still skilled quarterbacks or running backs and defensive ends. And then when college is coming, they scout them. They generally want them to play one position. And they bring them in and then they focus their body, their dietary habits, their workouts, all that on that position. Yeah, I think the answer to the question as well, what I would add is that you can look at it like this. As you go outside... So as you go further away from the from the ball and where it snapped, so those will be your corners on the outside and your defensive ends or your edges, mm-hmm. depending on the defense, length is more important. As you move closer to the inside, interior defensive linemen, interior offensive linemen, length become and inside linebackers, for example, length becomes way less important. So you, now you're worried about leverage. A guy like Dalvin Tomlinson never had length, but he gets leverage. But on the edge, you want the length because you're you have to set the edge in the run game, or you have to get around these edge rushers. Or I'm sorry, these offensive tackles. Same goes on the flip side for the offensive tackles and interior offensive linemen, and then at corner on the outside specifically. It's less important for those slot corners, but on the outside specifically, you want length to be able to kind of match up with these receivers, depending on how lengthy they are, and also for you have to be able to play press man, things like that. So I would just say length is more important as you move toward the outside of a formation, offense or defense, and as you go in, it's less important. All right, that's all we have for today on the Offensive Tackle Show. Thank you to those who have left iTunes reviews. There has been no questions on the iTunes reviews, just a couple nice compliments, so I don't feel any real reason to read off the compliments here. Uh, there was one four-star review, which I don't love, but it was apparently that uh, we're talking too fast, and you like to have your podcast app on 1.5 speed. Uh, then we, we are not for you. We got to slow that down. No, we yes. know. We're going to try to slow down our speed. We've both made a concerted effort to go slower, but if you could change that review to a five-star, that'll help us. You know, I get it. I get why. You could just put... From now on, if you don't like something about the show and you want us to... And something easy that we can improve like this... Keep the five star and just keep the but but right in the same continent with the butt. You still can keep it five stars though. We don't want those four stars. In and there. Giant G Men two. I gotta ask you, was there a Giant G Men one or do you just really like there must the number been. two? There must have been. There had to be, right? Who was it? I don't know. But thank you to Coop is poop and uh, Coop is the poop. And if I bled, it would be blue for a couple uh, really nice comments. We won't read them out here, but thank you. Also, if you want to help support the show. Follow us on Instagram, NYBigBlueBanter on Instagram. That's NY in front of Big Blue Banter. And on YouTube, type in Big Blue Banter. Find the logo. Hit it there. There's going to be some new content coming there, more toward the start of the season when we get actual football back as well. So a lot of good things coming down the pipeline, a few good guests. We will talk to you again shortly this week as we continue on with our traditional series. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. 
And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.